Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and late on Saturday night, I met a dog called Molly Disco Biscuits. Nice. Wow. Was that her full name? Official name. It was a dad and his daughter were walking Molly Disco Biscuits and I said, what's your dog called? And the little girl said, Molly. And he went, what's her full name? (laughs) And she went, Molly Disco Biscuits. So that kid is going to know a lot about drugs. Yeah. Do you think she fully understood the implications of Molly's name? Not right now, but give her time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and if spotting famous people were a sport, I would be the world champion. You are really good at it. I am. Go on then, who'd you see? Well... When we went to the theatre, and you were with us, but you mm. weren't with us at this moment, yeah. um, if not just to prove how good I am at it, we walked into the entrance of the National Theatre, and I said, Mickey, Michael Smiley, Miranda Sawyer, Kevin Clarkin, and standing in the doorway with a glass of wine, Sir Derek Jacobi. And she was correct on all counts. Did you independently research it afterwards? I went and studied their faces <laughs> very close up, and we were told to leave. And I'm Jennifer, and continuing a running theme, I have terrible repotting game, it transpires. Are your plants sad? It's one of up for two years. I think I think it's gone. I refuse to accept it. I'm gonna be beating on its chest like the rock trying to save his daughter, which we'll get to <laughs> later. Have you washed its hands? <laughs> It is wearing a bra, <laughs> the rockstar. Oh my goodness. Right, we'll get to that. Later on, I talked to actor Meg Kubota about Miles Apart Together, a new play about women who've accomplished world-beating feats. But, of course, we've never heard of them. Just women, aren't they? I chat to Leila Slamani about her book Sex and Lies, about the secret sex lives of women in Morocco. And in Journey Off the Blocks, we'll be talking the She Believes Cup and Do We Need to Talk About Phil? Phil Neville, that is. And California gets her difference literally split as we watch San Andreas in Dunleavy Does Disaster. But first, wipe your bum, wash your hands, join hands with other women, wash your hands, then wring your hands at the state of the world. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting and wash your hands. (coughs) Particularly you. (laughs) Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're stockpiling news like it's literally anything you could wipe your ass on. <laughs> Let's go live to Jen, who's reporting from the barren wasteland that is anywhere that sells hand sanitizer. Yep, the world lost its absolute shit last week. Not literally, though you'd be forgiven for thinking otherwise, as coronavirus continued to spread like wildfire across the globe. At the time of recording, there were 111,000 confirmed global cases of the virus and 3,884 deaths, and in the UK, 319 confirmed cases and four deaths. The public were urged not to panic and to wash their hands more frequently, and for longer, and with soap and water, which feels a bit like being told to adopt the brace position as your plane plummets towards the ground. Perhaps then, in the face of what seems to be a total absence of knowledge about just how serious this virus might be, that would explain the thousands of people panic-buying antibacterial hand gel and, more curiously, toilet paper. I get my toilet paper delivered from a company called Who Gives a Crap. I don't want to make you all jealous, but I've just been writhing in it. Just writhing in (laughs) toilet roll. Those people buying the loo roll, though. Presumably not the same people who won't carry tissues on the tube and instead... 
favour wiping their snotty nose with the palm of their hands before grabbing a rail, or as I witnessed last week, picking their nose and rolling the bogeys betwixt their fingers at length before flicking them on the carriage floor. You're fucking animals and no amount of loo roll is going to help you. I mean, never mind the fact that it's not a virus that actually makes you go to the loo more. And actually, if you do have to self-isolate for 14 days, and I've thought about this quite a lot, in the comfort of your own home, that's probably the best place to be, like, without loo roll, right? If you had to run out anywhere in your own home when you're not going to go anywhere and you've got, like, running water and stuff. I suppose it depends on the position of basin to toilet. I mean, there is that, but you'd, you've got 14 days to figure it out. You'll be fine. Okay. I actually saw someone in Dalston Sainsbury's on Friday night picking up three nine-roll packets of toilet paper. That is 27 loo rolls, guys. Unless you work in a care home, I can't excuse this. On the other hand, we are saying to people, check on your neighbours and go to the shops for them. So there is the possibility there that is, they are buying from more than one person. There is the possibility, but she had a frenzied look in her eye. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not just loo roll people are stockpiling. And to be honest, they're really not going to need that much of that loo roll if they're genuinely eating all of the dried pasta that's being brought up as well. In fact, supermarkets have had to limit sales of a number of essential items after panic buying. To be honest, guys, it's not just stupid. It's really unfair because people who can afford to buy 50,000 tins of tuna on the off chance that they might need it might actually be preventing someone from buying tonight's dinner. Yeah, true. At the more blasé end of the spectrum were those shrugging that it's only going to be old people and frankly after Brexit they're on their own anyway. Old people that that die, that is. Well, best hope it's not your old people then, I guess, or your diabetic people or your asthmatic people. I'm not going to tell you not to worry about it because it is worrying, I can't deny that, but for fuck's sake, wash your hands and carry tissues on public transport. If you've got an elderly neighbour... Maybe make sure they were able to get some dried pasta before it all got bought up and get yourself a flu jab. I heard this on the Romaniacs podcast, actually, or possibly the bunker. I forget which. Uh, It was a bit of advice that they'd heard elsewhere that one thing you could actually do that would be useful is get a flu jab. Because although it won't protect you from this, if you get really ill, then there's a good chance it's not going to be the flu. Yeah. Talking of Romaniacs, Alexandreou made the very brilliant point the other day that this kind of idea that Britain has, that we are very keep calm and carry on, has been utterly blown out <laughs> of the water by the past few days. There, there may be rabbits in the fields, but there's no fucking toilet roll in the supermarkets. So I would like to talk about convicted rapist Harvey oh. Weinstein. And not only because it feels just to finally be able to say convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein. Yep, despite vulnerability props, a hard-nosed female lawyer, bags of cash and all the odds, movie mogul and spherical bastard Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of two counts, one of third-degree rape and one of a first-degree criminal sex act, which is great. It's justice for those two women, as well as for the many others who couldn't press criminal charges against Weinstein, who is currently awaiting sentencing. Curious as to what jail time he could get? The charges carry a combined maximum sentence of 29 years and a minimum of five, and prosecutors are pushing for as harsh a sentence as they can get. It is worth noting that Weinstein was acquitted of the two most serious charges brought against him, which were two counts of predatory sexual assault. Nevertheless, it is a watershed moment. The criminal case against Weinstein was a long shot, and most women I spoke to, including Jodie Cantor and Megan Tuey, the New York Times journalist who broke the Weinstein story, didn't think he'd get found guilty at all, and yet here we gratefully are. But what does it mean going forward? 
For so long, these women believed that he was untouchable and could never be held responsible. But now the criminal justice system has found him guilty. That was Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, who added, that sends a powerful message. She's right. The solidarity of the hashtag MeToo movement definitely propelled the prosecution. So now that energy has to keep flowing. That the hashtag MeToo stories of individual experiences ended up a hashtag WeToo snapshot of what happens to so many women was integral to that guilty verdict. What's more, the Weinstein verdict shows that sex crimes don't necessarily follow tidy scripts and that will not only reshape public beliefs about which victims deserve their day in court, but also inspire other prosecutors to pursue similarly challenging cases. Or at least here's hoping. Weinstein still faces sexual assault charges in Los Angeles, which were announced just hours after his New York trial began back in January, and dozens of women have also filed civil lawsuits against him. Remember when we talked about this democratic primary and I said let's enjoy the diversity while we can it'll be about two white guys in their 70s soon enough indeed I was going to hunt out the clip and put it here but I don't want to be smug and also I can't be asked I think one of those is untrue (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I'm not a lazy person at all because despite being a race that had women people of colour and a gay man we're down to the final two and guess what Diverse, they ain't. Barring a major incident between now and then, like Trump deciding he's going to not have an election because of coronavirus. I mean, he hasn't said that, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. But barring that, the next president of America will either be a 79-year-old white man, a 78-year-old white man, or a 74-year-old orange man. (laughs) All of them quite high up in the old risk scale for coronavirus, though, (laughs) to be fair. That's what I was kind of getting at when I said barring whatever. I mean, I respect age as much as, in fact, possibly more than the next person. But that's the sort of lineup you should see when selecting the treasurer of a lawn bowls club, not one of the most powerful people on earth. The other big names in the race dropped out through the last few weeks. Pete Buttigieg failed by somehow managing to be both too gay and not gay enough. Oh, come on, Pete, you had one job. (laughs) And Elizabeth Warren, who bowed out last week, and of whom it must be said was categorically the best candidate in the race, took a tumble in the ratings after discovering that, for better or worse, people on Twitter often think quite differently to people not on Twitter. Something Labour arguably discovered, and I'm putting them in quote marks, last year. To be clear, I'm aware that being LGBT or a woman or a person of colour is a bad reason to vote for someone. And to illustrate this, I just want to pop over to the Labour leadership election where I have already voted. So I intend to disengage my brain from after this. Earlier this year, that bastion of feminism momentum shared a video it had made about how Labour has never had a female leader. About how now's the time to change that. And that the person to be our first female leader is Rebecca Long Bailey. That would be the same momentum whose supporters have engaged in endless whataboutery and bad faith arguments when asked about sexism on the left. No matter, they've got aboard the lady bus. Next stop, burn your bra parkway. (laughs) But here's the rub. As Margaret Thatcher taught us, being a woman and remembering that other women actually exist are two very different things. So let's talk about Rebecca Long Bailey pontificating on homophobia in football. A topic that truly merits the spotlight, but only if discussed properly. Something Long Bailey failed to do by saying there were no openly gay footballers. A statement so fucking wrong it deserves its own Wikipedia page. 
Short of that, I'd just like to say, failing to acknowledge that women's football exists, has fans and is incredibly inclusive, contributes to a society in which masculinity is used against any man who fails to meet its standards. I'm putting those in quote marks. Which is why homophobia is rife in sport. Any woman who wants to lead the Labour Party should understand this by now. Voting for a woman who doesn't understand it isn't feminist. In fact, I'd argue it's the opposite. It's almost like women are people and she forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Would anybody like some good news? Yes, please. Hannah didn't seem very convinced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's about women getting some recognition, no less. Oh, that's nice. Isn't it? A couple of years ago, we had a cracking chat with author Alison Vale about A Woman Lived Here, her book of remarkable women deserving of a heritage plaque because there is, you guessed it, a startling lack of blue plaques for women. In fact, even though the London scheme has been running since 1866, only 14% of about 950 blue plaques celebrate women. Anyway, the good news, this disparity is starting to be addressed. Finally... Back in 2018, English Heritage, which runs the scheme, called on the public for more female nominations and last week announced a staggering six new plaques for women coming later this year. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Six isn't a huge amount if you're talking like toilet rolls to stockpile, but it is a start. Right? Yes. So let's raise a glass to secret agents Christine Granville and Noor Iniat Khan, the artist Barbara Hepworth, First World War leader and botanist Dame Helen Gwynne Vaughan, and taking in more than one woman each, the headquarters of both the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and the Women's Social and Political Union. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we take no pleasure from the stats backing us up, because it turns out nine out of ten people are biased against women. And yes, that includes women being biased against women. Although, a bit like Hannah mentioned earlier, re Rebecca Long Bailey and footballers, a lot of people do keep forgetting that women fall under the header of people. <laughs> social conditioning is one hell of a drug. <laughs> the first gender social norm index from the UN Development Programme analysed data from 75 countries that collectively are home to about 80% of the global population. It backs up a gender index published in June by the Equal Measures 2030 partnership, which found that no country, no country whatsoever, was on track to achieve gender equality by 2030, which is the deadline to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The UNDP has found that almost half of people feel men are superior political leaders, and more than 40% believe men make better business executives. Staggeringly, almost a third of men and women think it's acceptable for a man to beat his wife. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, ladies, what the fuck? All of which is even more weird, given that so many people on Twitter tell us that women have achieved equality, so we just need to shut the fuck up already. But hey, what do stats and facts know that MRAs with anime avatars don't? Raquel Lagunas, acting director of UNDP's gender team, said, UNDP is very conscious of the backlash against women's rights. We are aware and we are concerned. We need to invest and double efforts to address the hardcore areas of power, political power and economic power. And we think, we hope, this publication is going to have impact in the countries we work in and open conversations with governments because gender equality is a choice. I mean, if you worded that and said... Would it be acceptable for your husband to be you? You would think that women would say no, You'd, right? Yeah. So what is the the disconnect in their brain that thinks, well, I don't deserve it. 
But those other bitches Maybe do. you think you're better at cooking than they are. I don't know. Yeah. Like, actually, I saw something on Twitter yesterday, which I tweeted about, on International Women's Day, no less, where Scottish widows had... They were doing some big, like, um, sponsored thing uh, on Twitter, like, promoted post about the pension gap. Where does it start? They pondered, and I thought, hmm, where does it start? So I had a little look to see how Lloyd's Banking Group, that's the parent company of Scottish Widows, fair and the old gender pay gap, because you could argue intrinsically linked with the pension gap. Yeah. Well, guys, I can tell you that the last reporting year for the gender pay gap, Lloyd's Banking Group, female employees, I think their median hourly wage was 66 pence to every pound a man earns. So there you go, Scottish Widows. A little bit of... uh, a little bit of info for you there. But, but Jen, where does the gap start? <laughs> don't, don't know. I just think, oh, if you're going to so brazenly like capitalise on International Women's Day, are you not going to think, like, hang on, are we going to look good? Are we going to come off well here if someone goes, like, not even rooting around, literally Googles gender pay gap, Lloyds Banking PLC. Maybe they'll be distracted by her sexy black cape. <laughs> she was very sexy, to be fair. <laughs> they didn't have this problem when they didn't employ women, though, did they? Good point. God, you know. Hannah's one of the nine out of ten, <laughs> isn't she? <laughs> Shut up, Mick. Stay in the back of my ass. <laughs> Definitely cut that. Hey, listeners. We very much like you listening, but we would bloody love you to become viewers. Our live gigs are things of joy, so you should totally come to one. Our next show is in Birmingham on Sunday the 29th of March at the very civilised time of 5pm. And Hannah and I will be chatting with the boss, Sarah Millican, the very talented actor and playwright, Helen Monks, excellent comedian and actor, Janice Connolly, aka Mrs Barbara Nice, and A.N. Other, T.B.A. We're also in the process of finalising gig bookings in Brighton, Manchester, Milton Keynes, London and Edinburgh. So keep an eye on our website for details of those bad boys. That website? www.standardissuepodcast.com I'm joined by best-selling author of the new book, Sex and Lies, Leila Slamani. Hi, Leila. Hello. So, Sex and Lies is about... The sex and sort of personal lives more generally of women in Morocco. So can you tell us a little bit about, other than being Moroccan yourself, can you tell us a little bit about the book and and why you wanted to write it? When I wrote my first novel, Adele, it is a novel about a woman who is a sex addict. It's a French character, but uh, I went to Morocco for a promotion tour, and at the end of a conference, a woman came to me, and she said, can I sit next to you? I would like to tell you my story. And she told me about her life, about her divorce, and more about her sexuality, very intimate things. And it reminded me of my own childhood in Morocco and how it was to be a teenager in a country where sexuality is forbidden for women when you're not married. You have only the choice to be a virgin or a married wife. So I wanted to try to understand what it was to be a woman today in a country like Morocco and more I wanted to give a platform to those women to help them speak out and tell what what their life was. So one of the things you say in the book is that when you were sort of when you were promoting Adele, quite a lot of people were sort of a bit like surprised. They were a bit like, "Oh, this is a bit of a sexy book," um, as I think as you described it. 
and they're a bit surprised it was written by a Moroccan woman. Is that like was that a bit frustrating? Oh, for me, it was funny because you know what is funny is that um, I come from Morocco, but I know France very well, and I know the story, the history of France, and I speak French, and I must say I know Britain and I know Europe, but the the opposite is not true. French people don't know a lot about Morocco or Algeria, mm. and uh, sometimes I'm yeah, sometimes I'm frustrated because they have a lot of opinions about our countries. But the truth is, they don't know a lot about our culture, tradition, literature, and uh, the Moroccan literature, for example, is very harsh and very crude and deals a lot with sexuality and homosexuality and all those kinds of things. So my book was not really a surprise. Can you tell us a little bit about, so for example, you say that uh, it's forbidden for women to have sexual relations outside of marriage in Morocco, but I think illegal for men as well outside of marriage. Of course, but you can't prove the virginity of a man, and you can prove, even if I don't think so, but in a certain way you can prove the virginity of a a woman through... You can say you can prove it. Yeah, exactly. You claim you can prove it, but... I wondered how those laws actually are enforced is it still the case that like now in modern society that you know legal authorities would actually sort of pursue that yes of course yes it's still enforced last year i think it was uh, 13000 people went to jail for that um most of them are women and the majority are poor people, people from the very lower class, because when you're rich and you have a house and you have a car and you have the possibility to hide when you want to have a sexual intercourse, there is no problem for you. And I must say that people in Casablanca, Rabat or Marrakech, they have the same sexuality as someone in London or in Paris. But when you are a woman, when you are poor, when you live in a suburb or in the countryside, when you live with your mother your grandfathers, your uh, sisters and brothers, and you don't have even a little place of your own, a space where you can have sort of intimacy. Of course, in this situation, it will be much more difficult for you to have a, a sexual life. Mm. I wondered, are women penalized more harshly than men? Yes, of course. Not only because of the laws and because of this thing of virginity, I told you, because also the culture in in Morocco considers that women is the one, the, the women are the one who are supposed to be virtuous for everyone, mm. for the whole community. For a man, we can understand a man needs uh, to have sexual intercourse. A man needs to be adventurous and to go out and to meet women. And then, when he will get married, he will be serious, etc. But the woman, she doesn't have this opportunity, even in for one year or two years or this little opportunity to have uh, a free sexuality or to express uh, her own desire. I think it's quite interesting. You you make a point in the book. It reminded me a bit of Chimamanda. Yes, of course. Mm. So one of the things she says in that very famous TED speech is about how we teach men and women different things. Like we teach young men and young women different things, and they're not compatible with each other. So, for example, we one of the points you make in the book is that we're accepting of the fact that 
men need to go and you know spread their wild oats and experiment and have these opportunities or whatever whereas women must be virtuous yes and they put a lot of pressure on on us women Mm. and girls in in general and they make us believe that everything depends on us that if we misbehave we will destroy everything we will destroy our family we will destroy our clan and maybe even our country that the honor and the pride of our family and clan etc depend only on us not on men on us so if we are not virtuous, if we um, don't behave like they tell us to do, the, the the danger is so big that we don't dare to do that because it's too big for us. Mm. But then also, if men are supposed to go and do these things, but women aren't, how it it doesn't work, does it? Do you see what I mean? Is it? Yeah, of course. I, I see the paradox yeah. as, as you do, but men they don't. They tell you there are the kind of woman you sleep with and the kind of woman you marry. And those are very different women. And even, you know, they know, for for instance, I have a lot of male friends and Moroccan friends, and they say to me, they they know that I'm a free woman and I've always made the choice I wanted to to make. And for them, even if they don't judge me, they would consider that they could never marry a woman like me. Even if they understand why I make this kind of choice and they understand the fact that I'm free, but I think they would feel ashamed of being with a woman like me. They consider that marriage as a tradition and as a social uh, choice is something where you are supposed to choose a woman who is Mm. virtuous and who has a, a good reputation in a certain way. So you think even men who you know in in France now, like in 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 this day and age, if you will, like in this era, you think Moroccan men in France still feel that way? I think so. Yeah. Because I receive a lot of testimonies from girls in, in France, mm-hmm. girls who come from Algeria or Morocco, and I was quite surprised because they said to me, even if we live in a country where those laws, the laws of Morocco don't exist, we are still raised in the same way mm-hmm. and we still feel a big pressure uh, concerning our virginity and the choice of our husband, etc. So, yeah, yeah, the problem is even in the immigrant community, I think that there are still a lot of pressures on, on girls. So you moved to Paris at the age of 17 and uh, we don't have in the UK we don't have a particularly big North African community but we do have a lot of other immigrant communities in in London for example uh, West African particularly Caribbean uh, Indian, Pakistani you know all over the place I guess countries that uh, we might consider more conservative with a small c and I think you hear a lot about tension amongst sort of young people growing up from those communities but growing up in Britain who are teenagers. When you went to Paris when you were 17, did you carry a lot of that with you, the sort of, you know, the upbringing you'd had? Did you find that easy to sort of shake off? I find it easy to to shake off because, uh, you know, I've never felt I had a, a strong identity. I don't identify to any countries, to any culture, I don't really feel I belong to any community. So I feel very lonely and I feel, in a good way when I say lonely, it's not something I suffer from, but I feel lonely and I feel that I always wanted to um, invent myself and try to understand who I was going to become, not who I am, 
but who I was going to become by my actions and by my beliefs and by what I'm doing in, in my life. So the only thing I wanted is to be free and to be alone and to, to do whatever I wanted to do. Mm. Because you're quite a political animal as well, aren't you? You're, you're an ambassador. Yes, absolutely, yeah. for the French language. Mm. And, and you were working as a journalist and you were involved in sort of breaking stories around the Arab Spring and things like that. So you've sort of been breaking the rules a little bit, as it were, for... Yeah, but you know, time. when you grow, when you grow in a country like Morocco, where the group is very important, you must be the part of of a group, and um, you must belong, and you must stick with the tradition of your community, etc. It's uh, people don't like. Um, Peria, I don't like people who want to be different, eccentrics, or people who assume the fact of being marginalized. But I'm this kind of people. I don't like to belong. I'm afraid of groups. So I can fight, of course, because when I see something and I feel it's unfair, I'm furious and I'm outraged and I want to write and I want to fight. But I don't do it because I feel that I belong and I want to defend my group or my crew or whatever. No, I do it just because as a human being, I think it's wrong. But that's it. Mm. Have you ever felt... Well, two things. One, have you ever felt sort of, I guess, endangered by expressing your beliefs, I guess, from within your community or or other communities? And also, how do your family sort of react to... Are they comfortable with, with the sort of things that you write? You know, I felt endangered, but at the same time, the first time I wrote a novel... And I was alone in my room and I was in front of my computer and I felt, okay, now I can write whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I have an enormous power. I have the possibility to say the truth, not to be polite, not to say what people want to hear or to be the nice girl and want to, wanted to be liked or even to be understood. I am free and this is like a vertigo, you know, when you are in front of your computer and you can write. So I feel endangered, but I like this danger. I think that's the most beautiful, the most exciting thing in the world. So I would, yeah, of course, I assume this danger completely because that's how you discover how writing is powerful. If you don't want to be endangered, you shouldn't write. And um, concerning my family, I remember that one day after a conference in in Morocco, a young girl, she came to me, and I was with my mother. (coughs) She was a young Moroccan girl with a veil, very shy. And she said to my mother, do you still like your daughter? Do you fight with her because of what she writes? Because I would never dare to write. I'm too afraid of what my family would think. And my mother said, of course, I love her, and you should write. And, you know, when you are a writer, you must accept that you have no loyalties to anyone, not to your community, to your gender, to your religion. You don't care. You write what you have to write. You don't write for people, but very often you write against. Another thing that you say in the book is that the Muslim religion can be understood as primarily an ethics of liberation. Now, to me personally, I don't follow a religion of, of any sort, and I think that 
like to me personally, no religion seems like particularly liberating. Sort of, sort of the opposite. So I wondered if you could explain that to me a little bit. First of all, I think that every religion is uh, an enemy to women. I think that every religion is an enemy to my vagina and to my body. No religion is okay with the fact that I do whatever I want with my body, that I can have an abortion or things like that. So that's the first thing. I'm absolutely convinced of, of that. But I know also that I know very religious people. My grandparents, for example, were very religious people. And in an old-fashioned way, people who were very respectful, who were open to other people, who were very attentive and very... Uh, generous to poor people who would every Friday go to poor neighborhoods and try to help and try to heal people who were poor and who had uh, problems. So they had an understanding of religion that was at the same time very simple and very generous. And this vision of religion that can help you deal with death, with uh, disease, with the fact that you are sometimes powerless, um, you know, one of my aunts, she lost uh, a child when he was very young and she became very religious and she's probably one of the nicest person I, I know and she never told me do this or do that or oh, she never judged me. It's just something that helped her liberate him, herself from this enormous pain. So I think that some people can understand religions in, in a beautiful way. The problem is that they are not the majority. Yeah. So when you say it can be used as a tool for liberation, do you think it's kind of... Um, do you think that the teachings of the Quran and I would suggest of all religious texts, are sort of taken out of context and or misappropriated, I guess, and used against us where perhaps... Yes, and people sometimes... Uh, I have the feeling that people are losing the essential of the, the message that is just love each other, respect each other, it's very simple, and people tell you all the time about the fact that they don't eat this, they don't drink that, and they pray each time. They, and at the same time, they lie, mm -hmm. and they, they are thieves, and they are bad people. So what's the point of praying five times a, a day if you're not a good person? I don't understand. For me, religion is just... Uh, what is interesting for me in religion is just this very essential and simple message of loving each other. Just going back to the book itself, obviously you spoke to a lot of women for this book. Did anyone's story sort of shock or surprise you? I think that what shocked me was the fact that um, a lot of women who decided to have a free life, a free sexual life, etc., and told me about that, at the end they said, but I regret my choice. I regret the choice of freedom. And if I had to redo it, I, I wouldn't. I would marry and have children and, and stick to the tradition because I feel too lonely and I feel that the cost of the price of, of freedom is too high. And I was very, very shocked by that because as a woman who lives in France and who has the choice of doing everything, I, I thought that everyone wants to be free and that it's always worth it to be, to be free. And I discovered that maybe it's not. Why do you think they felt like that? Because in a society, as I said, where you must belong and you must be part of a group, um, a family, um, I don't know, a anything, but you must belong, I think it's very difficult to be an outcast. Very, very difficult. It's a, a society where it's almost impossible to be an outcast. 
what's next for you? You've got a new novel coming out in France shortly, uh, The Country of Others is what is the translation yeah in French it's uh, Le Pays des Autres and it's the first term of a trilogy about Morocco that's my first novel in Morocco and it's inspired by the story of uh, my own family thanks very much Leila. thank you hi Hannah here just having a nice cup of tea and wanted to remind you that if you like what we do you can help support us you can do that by going to our Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to and also keep me in tea thank you hi i am joined on the phone by meg kabota hi meg hello meg is an actress who is about to appear in a new play miles apart together which is on at the vault festival between the 17th and the 22nd of March. This play looks really interesting, but I'm going to let you do the explaining of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks so much, Anna. So, yes, so uh, I'm in a play called uh, Miles Apart Together, which is about to go on the studio at the Vaults Festival, and we're very excited about that. So the play is about three women. The part I play is called Junko Tabe, and there are two other characters, uh, Bessie Coleman and Annie Londonderry. And all three women have done an amazing things in the past, physical feat in the past, yet the general public don't seem to know about them. So this, in this show, we just introduce their stories and their lives, but in a very fun, charming uh, way. Which is that you are essentially doing a podcast recording. That's right. So the premise is that that there is a a podcast called Miles Apart Together. We're doing a live recording of it. So this is hosted by Annie, Annie Londonderry. And it's sort of in a, a kind of a timeless world where people from the past, women from the past, come and talk on the show. A little bit like your podcast and also like the Guilty Feminist. So yeah. women come on the show to talk about their their lives um, and their, you know, the, the stories behind uh, what's happened. As someone, like you say, whose job is to speak to excellent women, periodically I do have these flashes of wouldn't it be great if whoever was still alive and we could talk to them, be that even quite recent, someone like Victoria Wood, who I never got the chance to interview, oh. or be that Eleanor Roosevelt or Bodicea. It's it's such a brilliant idea to, to bring Absolutely. women from history and put them Absolutely. in a, a modern context. It, it's really great because um, obviously the, the three women come from different sort of time frame. And, and basically, you know, we don't talk about it. We talk about, you know, some of their death a little bit, but we kind of talk about it as though, it's just a matter of fact, and it's um, it's a it's really a you know fun little show. I wish I could sort of say the claim that I came up with the idea, but um, it wasn't me. It was created by Katharina Reinthaler, who is the, our wonderful director, and also uh, Cecilia, who is the founder of Paper Smokers Theatre Company which the show is uh, produced by. The woman that you are playing, Junko Dubai, she was the first woman to reach the peak of Everest. 
And I'm ashamed That's to right. say I didn't know what her name was before I read about this play. I mean, I obviously knew there was a first woman, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know her name. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Well, actually, you know, I was the same. You know, before I got involved in this play, I didn't know about Junko at all, um, I'm ashamed to say. And uh, I mean, I was just amazed at the fact that no one... I mean, not no one knows about her, but, you know, the, the normal general public don't know her name because, um, you know, she was uh, obviously the first woman to climb Everest in 1975. She was 38th person to reach the summit. And also she accomplished the seven summits, which is the the seven um, highest peaks in oh, really? seven continents. Yeah, as well. So she was the first woman to do that. But not only that, she also, having done all these, you know, amazing things, she also decided that she got concerned about the environment of the these highest mountains because obviously, lots of the equipment, the rubbish gets just left behind because the the climbers don't have time to sort of you know collect all yeah. these things. So she went and did a degree on the environmental issues, went back to university in 2000 and then was a sort of um, an avid sort of a leader of um, wanting the mountains to be cleaned up and started lots of projects to, to, you know, to, to do so basically. Uh, which is not in our play, because we couldn't fit everything in. But, but th- that's I, kind of the good thing about plays like this is it will inspire someone to go off and learn more because there always is more to learn about about women that, like I say, we, we haven't really read that much about before. Absolutely, which is our main objective of this show. You know, of course, in, in a show like this, you can't tell... Um, everything about each of the characters is three three amazing women in this show and we can't tell all their stories but the hope is that people will go back and you know with the wonderful invention of um of the internet <laughs> people yeah. would look them up and learn more about it and in fact um so we've done a sort of a showcasing of it in a small in a small way and every time we did the show a lot of people would come up and say you know, oh, this show should be shown to schools and, you know, girls should know more about it. Why aren't they taught at schools and so on and so forth? And one particular teacher who came up to us at the end of the show said that, you know, they they get taught about Emmeline Pankhurst and Marie Curie maybe, but, you know, not these amazing women. So, Well, well exactly that, because you, one of the other women... Uh, mentioned in the play was the first woman of colour African American to hold a pilot's license that's an international pilot's license Bessie Coleman and the importance of that of talking about Bessie Coleman is that currently 3% of pilots worldwide are women only 3% and of those less than 0.1% are women of colour which is I mean if you can see it you can be it I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking. So what the director, Katharina and Cecilia, have, you know, were telling me about was that they came up with this idea because, you know, even now, you know, when, when you ask some you know, children at, in schools to draw a pilot, they always draw 
pilot as a man. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, wh- why is there such a preconception that pilots are men when, you know, women are perfectly capable of, of doing it? And to know that, you know, Bessie Coleman in 1922 was had accomplished this and was actually flying um, in a, 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 was doing a basically air show. Um, yeah. It's just an amazing thing. And, you know, her being um, the ethnic minority of a sort of African-American and also of a Native American is just uh, astonishing. And in fact, I mean, this is told in our play. She wasn't able to get the license in America because they weren't allowed to. So she had to go to France by a boat, I assume. And you know, had to, you know, self-teach um, French and got the license there. So wow! Again, she is an amazing, amazing character. That is commitment to getting something done, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. She was determined. Is there any questions? Obviously, you can't cover the whole lives of these people in a, an hour-long play. Were there any questions that you thought I would really like to know the answer to that? if you were given the opportunity to actually question the real person? Oh, oh well, I mean, there's, there's so so much. You know, there's <laughs> actually quite, quite a mystery around how Bessie died and everything. And, you know, also Annie Londonderry, who in our play is the host of the show. She is, um, basically, she went around the world on her bike. The first woman to go around the world on her bike, that was in um, eight. 1994 so I mean wow exactly you know there were sort of not many women cycling in the first place and then for her to go around the world is is amazing and also um, she basically hadn't cycled before she she had two lessons and then off she went around the world (laughs) yeah so she She's amazing, but the uh, the reason I'm I'm telling you about this is because she was this amazing character who was basically I think she was a born entertainer. So she used to go around, you know, on this bicycle journey, and she gave talks everywhere she went. But she would sort of make up things about <laughs> about her journey, and so no one to this day knows what's you know, quite true and what's not true. And she's got this um, mystery about her. So, you know, there'll be loads of questions that we probably all want to ask. Oh, I have to say, I do love a a bullshitter. Someone who, or I mean, we call them storytellers, don't we, in, in, in politest yeah, exactly. society. I was, I'm a big fan from childhood of the, the, I suppose initially the character Calamity Jane, Calamity Jane, but then obviously I learned more and more about her. And she was a woman who basically made up her entire life. <laughs> but made money out of it was really sharp yeah, yeah, yeah. knew how knew how to build a reputation and sell a reputation and the fact that most of it wasn't true didn't matter at all because men yeah. do that all the time and no, women exactly. rarely get away with it exactly and Annie Londonderry was exactly like that she was a very good storyteller she you know slightly um exaggerated about her life and her journey but she made money out of it which was you know partly um while she was doing it supposedly it was a bet so she had to make money for this bet yeah during her journey around the world 
and she was she was an amazing person so she she sort of um sold uh basically herself as an advertisement so she would say i'll go around the world with your sign on my you know on my skirt and, yeah. and so on as so very innovative forefront of the you know sort of the commercial industry really yeah that's terrific. Oh, this sounds completely brilliant, Meg. As a reminder, Miles Apart Together is at the Vault Festival, the 17th yeah. to the 22nd of March. Um, where can right. people go about getting tickets? The Vault Festival site, I'm assuming. Yeah, so the Vault Festival site. And if you just uh, put in Miles Apart Together on their, on their search site, uh, we are playing uh, from Wednesday to Saturday. Saturday we have two shows and every night we're playing at six o'clock and it's own just over an hour so you've still got you know plenty of time to enjoy the south bank <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i think it's perfect it is a charming charming show and as i said the, with the trial run the feedback's been great the audience really enjoy it and get into the stories of all these three wonderful women so I would um, highly recommend it. <laughs> thank you so much for your time talking to us. This has been oh, really thank interesting. You. you play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we proudly don a face mask and get our asses to the stadium. Stadia? Not sure about that. As we discuss all things women's sport. It always seems to be like a bit of a shit sandwich when we're talking about women's sport, although maybe that's just sport in general. With one hand he giveth and all that. I mean, if you're a Charlton fan, which you're absolutely unlikely to be, you'll know what I mean this week, although that's more like a shit pie, to be honest. The filling is much more substantial than the outer layer, and that filling is, well, guys, it's shit. Okay. So let's do good news, bad news in order to get ourselves through this. Good news. England won a match against Japan at the She Believes Cup. Please, please, please change the name of this tournament. It's so awful. It makes it makes part of my soul die every time I hear it. But anyway, this is good news. So Ellen White scored the late winner and Phil Neville said it was very disrespectful that she'd been shown no respect. More on him in a minute. That's technically not good news, but you know. Bad news. We've also lost a match to the USA and we're unlikely to retain our title. Good news. The Professional Footballers Association is launching its own women's football department, headed up by a woman, Marie-Christine Bouchier, because the game is developing so fast and it wants to ensure it's looking after the interests of its female players. Because female athletes might have different needs. Stop the fucking press, guys. Anyway, bad news. Phil Neville remains the manager of the Lionesses. Ah, well, Phil, it's kind of easy to take the piss out of Phil Neville because he's basically fan art of his brother. But look, in all seriousness, Neville was appointed manager of the national team on the strength of never having held a permanent position as a head coach of any football team. I'm not saying he shouldn't have the job because he's a man, like I wouldn't say the England manager should be English. I think the manager should be the best available person to do the job and most likely to yield good results. Is that person Phil Neville? Well, no, I don't think so. To be honest, I'm not sure he ever was. Certainly, he couldn't have gotten a job at a comparable level in the men's game. But also, his results have been bad. 
I think the game has changed since he was appointed. I think there are more people out there now. There are more pathways for female coaches. There's more women coming into the game and the talent pool is a lot bigger. In a men's team, I think if we saw the team's results diminish over a period of time, we would expect to hold the head coach to account for that. And if we don't do the same in women's football, we're sending the message that less is expected of them, which I think is frankly a rubbish message to send. Will the FA keep him on because he brings, in inverted commas, star quality to the game? Yes, absolutely. Should they bin him off now to give the public time to forgive them for shooting a puppy well in advance of next year's Euros? Yes, absolutely. Moving on from football, good news. Sky Sports has said it will increase its commitment to women's sport this year by increasing its digital output. Apparently, women's Six Nations, WNBA, ooh, WNBA, that's good, Netball Super League and women's cricket will all be on its YouTube channel this year. Bad news, it's free, which is also sort of good news, but kind of sends a message that women's sport has less monetary value than men's sport. I mean, there's actually more bad news than good, to be honest, so I'm going to flip reverse this one so that we end on a high. Bad news... Australia's Herald Sun newspaper has said this week that it has had to shut down comments on stories about the Women's Australian Football League after it was consistently inundated with sexist abuse. It said that both players and clubs had asked for this action to be taken, which I think is really sad. But also, people who comment on articles are mad, aren't they? But if you're thinking, we're so much better than that here, sorry guys, male colleagues I've worked with in sports journalism have often told me they've had to shut down comments on particular articles relating to women's sport, especially if the article's written by a woman, and even more so if the article's about Serena Williams, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions there. Anyway, let's end with some good news, and that is that the Women's T20 Cricket World Cup attracted record investment and attendance this year, and Australia lifted its fifth T20 trophy on Sunday in front of a crowd of 86,174 people. So clearly Australia is doing something right. Congratulations to them. That's all from me. I'll be back next time with more women's sport, assuming coronavirus doesn't put a stop to all things. In the meantime, give me a shout on Twitter if you want to shoot the sporty shit. I am at Inspiragen. Laters. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what film has been making our earth tremble this week? This week we watched... Uh, San Andreas, t- 2015. Actually, first film that I've ever seen with The Rock in that wasn't Moana, because he's in that, but he's not obviously in it, is he? Yeah, have you not seen The Mummy? Nope. Oh. I oh, you'll find he's in The Mummy, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I think you'll find he's Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Never seen him in anything, apart from Twitter videos, in which he always comes across as really nice. He seems like a proper lovely man. Do you remember that time Sarah had a sex dream about Mm. The Rock? Yeah. And all it was was just The Rock giving us some kittens. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He also did that brilliant thing with um, uh, on Saturday Night Live with Tom Hanks where they announced they were going to run for presidency and vice presidency and Tom Hanks was like, I should be the president because I've fought in every war that America's ever fought in. And Dwayne Johnson says, you should vote for me because People think that I am what they are when it comes to ethnicity. It's the so, universal yeah. appeal of Rita Ora and yeah. indeed Vin Diesel. Yeah. No one knows. Anyway, so San Andreas, obviously, we know where we are, California, opens with a shot of some seriously piss-poor driving going on. 
Uh, and then there's a, a small earthquake and a girl, woman, teenager, I don't really know, falls into a crevice so, so deep and tumbles over so many times that the question that is, how is she still alive? Yeah. How is she still alive? Anyway. And also has quite handy access to her phone. <laughs> yeah, well, she hasn't smashed or anything. No. It's no. just laying next to her. Anyway, what happens is the rock turns up in... A helicopter, because that's what he does. He saves people. He works for the fire service. Who have a camera team with him, uh, being led by Archie Banjabi. And they conduct a daring rescue in which somebody gets trapped and somebody gets pinned and they've nearly run out of fuel and it's all very melodramatic. And Archie Banjabi gets very aroused. Yeah. And they, 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 Fair they, enough. They <laughs> catch this girl and he says to her, let's get you home. And you're like, take it to a fucking hospital. Like, seriously, how is she even still alive? She'll be bleeding internally. Don't take her home. So that is kind of how the whole of this film is. I feel like that's the whole film in microcosm. Which means that it, it's there's a lot to like because it's ridiculously silly. I loved it. <laughs> and actually, oddly, it treats women possibly it treats women more respectfully than any disaster film we've come across yet. Possibly because it was made in 2015, but it is dumb as fuck. Yeah. So next place we go to see Professor Giamatti. Yep. Um, pro Paul, pro Paul, who's wondering, you know, could there be some more earthquakes? So. He and a colleague go off to the world's greatest feat of civil engineering, the Hoover Dam. Uh, and, and you can imagine that my fingers were already twitching over the pen for farewell major landmark. <laughs> We've not seen the Hoover Dam go before now, No, it was, it, was, it was exciting. Yeah. What happens? Earthquake. The whole thing collapses. People die. Foot is impaled. And then we're back with The Rock, who is, surprise, surprise, divorced, because all... Heroes in this sort of thing have to have an ex-wife they're trying to win back. I think he's almost divorced. Oh yeah, he gets his papers. Yeah, they have to sign the decree. No, so and he has. Which is handy. Yeah, he. Her. He, there's there's a new partner. There's always a new partner in these things. Who is played by Ewan Griffith. Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Yeah. Is anybody Titanic. alive out there? Yeah. Anyway. He's a guy that describes his buildings as his babies. So there you go. That'll tell you who he is. Anyway, so he, the the Rock's daughter, goes off with her potential boobs. new father. Sorry. Yeah, her incredibly bouncy boobs. They are like the bounciest boobs I've ever seen. I watched this with Gary and then he came home from work the next day. We watched it on a Wednesday. He came home from work the next day and he was like, oh yeah, so that, that bird, she was in Baywatch. And I was like... Did you booble her? And he's like, I might have Googled her. I'm like, you boobled her. And he was like, I did booble yeah, her. Yeah, there was a disproportionate amount of, of breast action going on. Should have been her. Pet Survives Cleavage. <laughs> so anyway, this is setting us up, basically. So The Rock has been called to help people who have been hurt in, in the disaster at the Hoover Town. Which is weird, because they go, oh, if you could get here tomorrow... Which seems strange, because you would think, well, like, not today. That seems, like, urgent. They know that there were more earthquakes on the way. His daughter is up with her father, uh, stepfather-to-be, in uh, San Francisco. His wife is is going out with Ka- Kylie Minogue for dinner, because that's a thing. Why not? She's Owen Groff's sister. Yeah. Uh, but I meant the Kylie Minogue being in it for such a small amount of time. Which seemed, it, it was odd. It seemed very odd. Yeah. She was great, though. 
And she went out of her door and never came back. <laughs> what, what an exit. Yeah. That was, there, were, there were some really dramatic, brutal okay. exits when that building went. And Archie Punjabi is hanging around with Professor Paul Giamatti, who has discovered that the San Andreas Fault is apparently not a straight line, as we thought, but goes round and makes a sort of jigsaw pace. And this is where the science goes completely mad. Anyway. Also, she is aroused by the rock and intelligence. Yeah. They're the two things that get her. Well, you know, she's just um, she's just got varied interests. I suppose there's always a low level trembling throughout the film as well, which must be like sitting on a washing machine. <laughs> so then, disaster strikes and a massive earthquake, massive, massive, massive earthquake hits basically the entire of California. It's the San Andreas fault line. Yeah. Well, the newly created and redrawn San Andreas fault line. Um, Kylie Minogue just drops off the side of a building. <laughs> Sorry, there, it is funny. The, the daughter, it was like a career in the, the 90s. Daughter, was she called Megan? Did I write that down? Tits McGee. Tits McGee. <laughs> the, the daughter, bouncing but tits McGee, she, she meets two British people who I meant to Google to see whether they were actually British or not. I Googled them because it was in my interest to find this out. The older brother looks like Owen Jones, which is... <laughs> Which was very disappointing. Were they actually British? No, <laughs> very much. Actually, I don't know about the little one, but the, the, the one, one familiar, like the I'd one with the appalling else. accent, very much Australian. Right. Okay. Mm. But that's funny because most of the time when people try to do British accents, what they, they actually Australian. do is Australian. Yeah. So she gets trapped in a car. Nasty bastard leaves her, and so the older brother decides to put the life of his younger brother at risk in order to try and get to this girl he wants to bow. She's got lovely tits, <laughs> right? And but then this is and this is my favourite plot thread in it. That so they basically the Rock goes and saves his wife, and then tries to get to San Francisco to save his daughter. Meanwhile, his daughter has picked up these two British people, and she's trying to get to meet her dad, right? And they decide they all need to stay together because she knows about the magic and mystery that is push-button phones and landlines. And they go on about this twice. This is such an important plot point. They cannot split up. because. But she understands push-button phones and landlines. I mean, is this... That's like she can read hieroglyphics. Or she something. also knows that emergency vehicles carry emergency supplies, Hannah. It's not to be sniffed at, that kind of knowledge. And she's ever so good at volleyball. And also tits. <laughs> Didn't yeah. make the connection. Tits, volleyball, all makes sense. <laughs> now, to be fair, The Rock is a member of the fire service. And at this point, he just decides to just save his own family. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I thought yeah. that and I thought, I would. Yeah. If, I, if you're in a helicopter, the world looks like Emmerichianly em- fucked. Right. Um, and your daughter's in danger. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to get him. Okay. And also, he's already lost a daughter. He has. He has. But he doesn't talk about it. We don't talk about that. Just... That's because he was in Nam. He wasn't in Nam. He was in Iraq. Yeah. Just like to point out, they also get in, in and out of cars. Nobody ever adjusts a car seat, do they? Nobody ever gets in and goes, fucking hell, I need a bit more leg from here. Sorry, mate, I think you'll find you've got no more room on your bingo sheet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should. Jen's um, got one, Jen's got a free one. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ewan Grifford is, you know, still alive and just being the worst person alive, causing the deaths of loads of people by being an absolute cunt until he gets crushed by a load of uh, cargo things, whatever they have in Pallets. the Containers. Containers, like in, yeah. yeah. He just gets to go, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> just as one hits him. And then 
Obviously, and there's another earthquake hits. It's not an aftershock, it's a separate earthquake. They like to make a thing about that. But then there's a uh, tsunami, and I have to say, I was led to believe when tsunamis went out from an earthquake, they went out. And this one comes in. Do they go out and then come in? Mm. It causes a tidal sort of yeah. wave. So it goes out and then it starts coming back in again. That's not what happened when the tsunami hit, like the Boxing Day tsunami. Yeah. In Indonesia? Yeah. The earthquake was elsewhere. And then cause the wave to then like... And in fact, that's what Prof Paul says early on in the film about Japan and the one that causes a tsunami 8,000 kilometres away. Uh, but you know what, Hannah? It's almost like they didn't need it to be very realistic. Almost. So, yes, uh, anyway, they all Also, find... they needed more vehicles. They'd been in all the other vehicles. They have. They needed a boat. Th- then they get in a boat, they save her, and everything's fine. And then at the end... Dwayne oh. The Rock Johnson says, um, now we rebuild. Oh, and I yeah. thought, well, not you. None of you fucking characters live here. Not, not one of them lives there. They all live elsewhere. So it seemed odd that he was going to stay and build. I can't remember which character goes, now what? Which then, he, that is his answer. Yeah. But before he answers, oh, the American the flag. flag just yeah. unfurls. It's not tatty at all. It's completely it's fresh. Yeah. Box fresh flag. Yeah. Uh, Team America, fuck yeah. yeah. But also... She's dead for a good three minutes. Yeah. Yes. His daughter drowns, just like the other daughter, and he can't let that happen. So he just doesn't give up on the old CPR. But, I mean, there was no oxygen going to her brain for a good five minutes. I've got some problems with this. I've got some problems with with the science of it. Uh, With the science of a lot of it. But, yeah, she definitely, if she'd survived that, I'm pretty sure there'd be some fairly comprehensive brain damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He'd have had to take her home like he did the other girl that was clearly very severely injured. Mm. <laughs> she was underwater for a very long time. Yeah. Also, she just went, she's like, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm okay. Actually, do you know what? I'm probably not going to do this. And yeah, she just, just like, opens yeah. her mouth. Just off she goes, just tits all over the place. And, and that's it. That's your lot. Yeah, you would think they would have added some sort of buoyancy, Jen. <laughs> I think they did. They kept her afloat for ages, but then there was just no room in the in the, go. Yeah. in the place for more water. Anyway, so that's San Andreas. Um, like I like really it. I kind I kind of liked it. I mean, I like the silly ones. Yeah, I mean, partly because it's silly, and partly actually, to be fair, it's female characters who are actually had yeah. agency and all of that stuff. And um, I'm gonna have to say, well, just goes to show that. you can have agency and tits. Who'd have thunk it? It, yeah, no, and, until like the last bit when she was swimming and then I was like, oh, you're taking the piss now with the tits. Like, you're really taking the piss. But until that point, I was like, these are quite good female characters. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So let's have a count up. In that rest of the, the most graphic scenes, I think, are when uh, Dwayne Johnson's wife is having dinner with Kylie Minogue yeah. and then that all goes to shit. There's a man on fire in the kitchen. There's a guy who just is like running up the stairs and the wall collapses. Yeah. He's gone. Kylie's fucked up out there. I was like, wowzers. That is... The funny thing about the horrible. guy on fire is the guy goes, leave him. He's like, well, at least you try and help him. But anyway. I think I've got six. There'll be a Brexit analogy, but I've not thought of it. So I feel like you should have had that one really about Brexit analogies, Hannah. It's, it's been wasted on me largely because my go-to is... Turns out everything's shit. Yeah. I think I've got five. Yeah. I've got six, I think. So, well, as I think I'm the loser, I'll name my five. Okay. Um, I've got to say, surprisingly, and I think this is a first, absolutely no pets in there. No. Mm. No pets. 
But I have to find my son. I'm having daughter because yeah, that's the yeah. whole gist of the thing. Nature, you cruel mistress. Farewell, major landmark. Bridge collapse. And hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Oh, Yoan. Gets around. That's it? Yeah. I don't even think it could be a porn film title. Maybe it'd be um, like um, a foreign, win the foreign movie. Yeah. Okay, I've got Thing You Can't Do, meaning you'd definitely die in this film. Well, predict earthquakes. Fly a helicopter, fly an aeroplane, call my dad. Any of those things. Use a landline. <laughs> Use a landline. <laughs> Notor- what the fuck are the bombs for? <laughs> Notoriously, Hannah just smashes her face against the keys. <laughs> um, so many traffic jams. Actually, human traffic jams rather than cars in yeah, the streets yeah. in San Francisco. I just want to mention Fancy Hair Do Gone Bad, because although I'm not taking it, I would like to point out that Dwayne The Rock Johnson's wife's hair is immaculate throughout. Yeah, yeah. She, um, looks, she looks great. Yeah. My eyes, the CGI, I'm oh, having yeah. that because oh, there yeah. is a bit where they're in the street where the second earthquake hits and the boy that's not English is running and a pole comes down behind him and it looks awful, really bad, really awful. Also, I think they're on like, I don't know if it's their boat or a jet ski or something. I think it's the boat. They almost get caught in the propeller of something. Yes. And that is painful to watch which is a shame because mostly the effects are really really good do you think they just run out of budget in the editing suite yeah i think is... they just got greedy yeah cassandra ignored uh because paul giamatti it, in fact wasn't ignored for that long but apparently had been banging on about it for ages according to this it was all going so well until i sprained my ankle slash got a piece of glass jabbed into my thigh and I am having screaming cowardice because that's what... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. was the whole way through it. He's the guy stockpiling toilet roll in <laughs> Austin. He absolutely is. Yeah. I'm not sure, also, on, on a provably bad science tip, I'm pretty sure she does exactly the thing you're told not to do. Just to pulls someone. it out. <laughs> yeah, just, just gonna yeah. have a sheet of glass out of your leg. And also, she just ties something around it, yeah. right? But not, like, up at the top, because yeah. she's supposed to... Yeah. Tie something around it and then immediately yeah. goes, can you put weight on that leg? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, all right. It's <laughs> okay. a very uh, major artery. Right yeah. There, I think. I've heard. Yeah. Anyway, um, I've not thought of it, so I, you should have had Brexit and Auntie Hannah. Um, so anyway, piss poor English accent. Yes, he is Australian. When I was in America cycling around, someone approached me at one point and said, you didn't really come here all the way from Australia just to ride your bike around, did you? And I said, nope. Okay. Came from England, you fucking twat. What's anyway, an Australian accent like, Jen? It's very much like this, apparently. Okay. Um, they're, they're confused, Americans, about English and Australian accents. Anyway, so many helicopters. Check. Um, provably bad science. So much of it. Um, this disaster saved our relationship. And for once, I'm, I'm actually glad. Yeah. Yeah, I think that... I mean, can we just say, we've not said it, but I'm going to say it. The Rock's lovely, isn't he? Oh, he's lovely. He's a lovely boy, isn't he's he? He's lovely. I just want to chuck his cheeks <laughs> and climb him like a tree. He is a Republican, isn't he? But I think he's a fairly measured one. Is he a Republican? I believe no, he is. I wouldn't have thought so. I believe he is. He's got a lot of Very money. much out and proud on that front. But let's not, you know. Uh, can you smell burning? Yes, yes, I can. Sobbing child. The little boy. Are you sure you're not thinking of Kid Rock? No, I'm thinking of <laughs> The Rock. Um, Very different rocks. <laughs> Sewing tiles. The little boy doesn't want her to die, and neither do we. Um, and he gets it. upset when his brother's stabbed with some metal as well. 
He, he, he gets upset. And he goes, well, I just want to go home now, which I think is fair I, enough. I, I think, fair play to him, I'd have sobbed a few times. So we go, six. Okay, let me see if I can think of a Brexit analogy. Well, there was a massive split. Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, it's like the um, the fanny art of the British Isles, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. And the Kapush did. Mm. Yeah, like I said, it's really splitting a difference. Mm. Anish Kapoor, not Anir Kapush. I don't know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> Anish Kapoor. Uh, yeah, there was a massive schism and things will never be the same again. But what mm. do we do now, Jen? Now we rebuild. Stop parley, Rose. There you go. Well, I would say you get to pick, but... But you've already picked. Well, no, it's just, it's quite hard. Every time we pick something, we go, oh, fucking hell, I can't find a copy of that. What we'll do is we'll, we'll have a conflab. Yeah. And decide. Yeah. Yeah. Put some knuckle dusters. Oh, not again. So many car parks I can't go into. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.